Welcome to this special edition of Awakened to Grace. Today, we sat down with our great friend, Pastor Doug Tweed. Doug leads Friends of the King Ministries in Kingsport, Tennessee, and Doug has written a tremendous book. It is called Be With Jesus, Be Like Jesus, Be For Jesus. And you know, just uh, a few short weeks ago, I sat down and I listened to his audiobook. As most of our listeners know, I'm completely blind. And so now in this season of my life, I listen to audiobooks. And I was able to get a copy of Pastor Doug's book, and I cannot tell you how much it ministered to me. It was like drinking water from a fountain to my soul. It was just as though the Lord says he leads us beside still waters to restore our soul. And let me tell you, his book had so much clear scripture teaching, 500 references to the word of God itself, that it was literally like drinking from a stream of water. And it just refreshed my soul. And so there was a certain section of his book that particularly ministered to me. And it is where uh, Pastor Doug explains the old wineskins trying to receive new wine and the hard saying that Jesus said new wine cannot go into old wineskins and the explanation that Doug gives to this hard saying of Jesus just sparked in my heart why don't we sit down and interview Doug and let him give an opportunity to explain to our listeners some of the hard sayings of Jesus So, Pastor Doug, welcome to our broadcast. I can't wait to hear you teach and converse some of the Word of God with us today. We welcome you. Thank you. What a blessing to be here. I'll, I'll um, first follow up on your very kind promotion of the book and let everybody know that it's available with the publisher, Westbow Press, and it's also available on Amazon, audiobook, ebook. Uh, uh, soft cover, and it's uh, now even available in, in a Spanish translation. Um, let's first read the scripture from Luke 5, beginning at verse 36. Then he, and he is Jesus, spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And then I'm going to add, it's just past the parable at verse 39. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new. For he says, the old is better. Now, Chad, this parable is also reported in Matthew 9 and Mark 2. It's a teaching of Jesus that comes immediately after to the horror of the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of that time, Jesus had eaten with sinners and prostitutes and then additionally failed to have his disciples fast in the same way that they fasted. 
Right off the bat, Doug, I know as I listen to you um, begin to set up our teaching today, I'm thinking for those Christians who they've heard the word parable before, uh, you know, a lot of times I think, especially uh, those who have been in the church world, we hear things, we kind of know what it is. You know, we know, I think most people could say, okay, a parable is a way that Jesus taught but can you give us a little more clear of an understanding? What exactly is a parable that Jesus would have given? Well, a parable is a story, sometimes a very, very short story, or in modern preaching terms, we might call it an, an illustration that is used to reveal a truth. Hmm. And um, uh, we've often heard, you know, tell me a story. A, a picture's worth a thousand words. I, I remember a, a preaching instructor of mine way, way back when I was at Asbury Theological Seminary uh, talked to me about uh, God's story coming through your story into their story. Um, but Jesus would teach parables because sometimes just laying it out in kind of basic dictation of of truth or doctrines or thoughts or philosophy just wasn't going to tune in to a lot of the people. Mm. And so he gave tons of parables. I'll be given a few examples later, but the parable of the treasure in the field that he gave everything up to, to have because the kingdom is that valuable would be one example. I was actually listening to a Bible teacher this week. I think it was out of Mark chapter 4, the story, I believe it's the parable of the sower. And he made an observation that I had never noticed before when Jesus said that he called them secrets. He made an interesting observation that I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on. He said that secrets there, the secrets of the kingdom, is actually a poor translated word because in the Greek, the word is mystery. And he said, here is the difference between a secret and a mystery. A secret is meant to keep. <laughs> uh, it's not meant to be revealed. If I tell you a secret, I intend for you to keep that secret. But a mystery is meant to be revealed. A, a mystery is meant to be figured out. Oh, I just think that's a great concept. And I think one of the things we must all remember is that there are mysteries uh, that we have not unfolded yet. We have uh, preachers and theologians sometimes that lay it on us as if they've got it all figured mm. out. But you talk about mysteries like the Trinity and things of mm. that nature, uh, yeah. mysteries like an eternal God who's outside time uh, putting everything into motion and yet our choices mattering along the way and not all being predetermined. These are mysteries. Yeah. But, but I think there's a scripture. I can't quote it for you. I wish I could. It is the honor or blessing of kings to pursue the answers to mysteries and the solution of mysteries. Well, I know as, as a Bible teacher myself, I have to come to a point where I am comfortable, as Paul said, we see through a glass dimly. We don't have all the answers, and we don't have to have all the answers. No, if we had all the answers, then we wouldn't be walking by faith and not by sight. Amen to that. That's why we're so dependent on God, and he calls us to come to him as little children. So, Doug, set us up in the text here. So, Jesus is going to teach by way of parables and continue to lead us. Through well, here. in addition to the fact that this is a parable that is... Uh, 
recorded in three of the four Gospels. It's also a parable that has actually two little parables parallel in it because Jesus first points out you don't patch an old garment with cloth from a new garment. It won't match. And if you look at Matthew and Mark, uh, it's described in a way that tells us the new is unshrunk. So when the patch is put on the old argument over time, it, it actually pulls away when it shrinks and makes it tear worse than it ever was. But after that, Jesus turns to the parable of the wine and the wineskins. It's familiar to almost all of us. This is where our focus will be. Wine and wineskins were a major part of Jesus' culture in Jesus' day, and they all knew you put new wine into new wineskins because new wineskins were still flexible. As the new wine continued to ferment and create gases, the new wineskins could stretch to handle it. Old wineskins, on the other hand, were rigid and stiff. New wine would cause them to burst, and you'd lose, as Jesus expressly told us, both the wine and the wineskin. Now, what our English translations generally fail to do is let us know that in the original Greek transcripts for this parable in the New Testament, two different words were used for new. Now, there's an important reason the Bible did this. God would not inspire the use of two different words if he didn't have a reason. The word used for the new wine is neos. We might spell it in English N-E-O-S. It's a Greek word that means new, young, or fresh. Neos is new in time, but not different in kind from the old that it replaced. So, for example, you run out of milk, you go to the store, get a new carton of milk. It's the same milk, but it's new milk. However, the word that's used for the new wineskins is kinos. We would spell it K-A-I-N-O-S. It's a Greek word that is often used to mean new and improved. Think of, you know, being told in the ad about the new and improved tide. It's not only fresh, but it's different in some positive way from the old that it replaces. So in the New Testament, kenos is used to describe our new covenant in Christ, which is clearly superior to the old covenant. Our identity in Christ is a new creation, clearly superior to what we used to be. The new heaven and the new earth that will come at the last day when everything is changed according to Revelation 21 and Christ makes all things new, kenos. So, so let's apply that to the people of God, both then in the time of Jesus and, and now. The scribes and the Pharisees were objecting to Jesus about changing how things worked. You don't associate with sinners. You, you, you fast all the time in this way and not that way. But Jesus said, now I, I'm bringing some new wine. I'm bringing some fresh revelation from heaven, and you're going to need new and improved wineskins to hold it. Your old traditions, your old rules, your old interpretations of God's Word are simply not good enough. And then today... Well, we're God's people. We, we need the new wine of spiritual awakening and, and revival. I think virtually everybody feels that way. Spiritual awakening and revival are what God uses not only to increase our enthusiasm and passion and our commitment to bring us, but also to bring us to greater Christian maturity. 
And so that new wine comes from God's Word and God's Spirit. And while God's Word and God's Spirit can come in a fresh way to us, it can even be new to us concerning some truths we hadn't heard before or we hadn't learned yet, we all recognize that God's Word and God's Spirit never need to be improved. So that's new wine. That's neos. On the other hand, Christians in our faith communities, we are the wineskins into which this new wine must be poured. And that's where the problem lies. If we're rigid, if we're set in our ways, if we're unwilling to change or let God stretch us, so to speak, then we can't receive the new wine. And that's why it's so important to remember verse 39 that I read, the tail end of this parable in Luke. Again, uh, having drunk the old wine, they don't desire the new. They say the old is better. You just become complacent. Well, not only complacent, but there's actually something more powerful than that. It's a fear of change. The, The Pharisees didn't want what Jesus was doing or what he had to say because they liked the old wine just the way it was. They were comfortable. They were, it ain't broke, don't fix it. They were in the place where they felt, you know, they, they were in a good position for themselves. So rather than follow Jesus, they crucified him. Wow. Okay? But, but, but when we look at ourselves today, we, we, we have to recognize that God understands human nature. We need to understand it too. Most people resist change. There's a minority of people who relish change. There are the people who say the grass is always greener on the other side. But for most of us, unless you're in just a horrible situation that demands change, you prefer the known. You prefer the familiar to the unknown. And so you resist change. And it doesn't apply just to individuals. It also applies to institutions. Mm. When a new movement of thought or idea, anything, including new products, anything of that nature, begins to develop in a society or a culture, well, it's at first focused on flexibility and growth. You know, it has to have some structure to get anywhere. Uh, Those who out there who have ever seen the Far Side cartoons and Gary Larson may have seen the cartoon about the boneless chickens. You know, they're just lying on the floor. They can't go anywhere. They can't do anything because they don't have any skeleton. But, but, but in a movement, the, the skeleton, the structure that you have is like the one we have as people or vertebrate animals have. We call it an endoskeleton. And so it allows growth. But over time, a movement becomes institutionalized. After a while, the first priority of an institution becomes the preservation of the institution. And then we have an exoskeleton, like a crab or a lobster. And now real change can only occur after you shed the skeleton altogether. Now, that, that, that concept of human nature over history is clearly applied in the church. New movements of thought about Christian faith and God's Word have arisen in the church, often leading to new denominations, for example, over time, these two become more and more institutionalized, and then they become more resistant, like the Pharisees and scribes, to any kind of change that God might be inviting us to. Um, many of the institutions of the church, I think this is really important for us to understand, say we shouldn't change 
because God doesn't change and because God's word doesn't change. And both of those statements are absolutely true. God doesn't change. Malachi 3.6, Hebrews 13.8. His word doesn't change. Matthew 24.35, Proverbs 35, Psalm 31.13. But if I'm understanding correctly, you're saying that portions uh, that portion that does not change is like the new wine. It's the wine skins that must be new. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, if if it's a biblical way to put it, bingo. Yeah. You see, God and his word never change, but God's word calls for us to change mm. and to continue changing so that both individually and collectively as community we can become more and more like Jesus. So the brokenness can be more and more redeemed and restored and repaired and healed. So, Doug, this is incredible teaching. It's, it's almost like drinking from a fire hydrant. There is so much here to process and to receive. So let me ask you this. If the old wineskins, if we represent those old wineskins, and just as you said a moment ago, the Pharisees were comfortable. It was convenient for them to not change. If they were going to follow Christ, meant they would have to change. So how is it that we can not become these old wineskins? We can embrace change. We can allow the Lord to bring change into our life. Explain to us what that process is like. Well, I probably want to explain it in kind of Two stages are, are, are two parts. I think first, we need to be persuaded by God through his word that he is calling us to change. Uh, that's where a lot of the misunderstanding is. We're committed to believing that God knows what he's doing and that we're supposed to obey him. We're not supposed to tell him what to do. We're supposed to do what he tells us to do. And so we looked at scriptures, and there's many, but Romans 12, 2 says, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. More and more truth sets us more and more free. That's why we're called to this continued study and application of God's word. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says we're to be transformed from one degree of glory to another into the image of Jesus. So we know it's process. It's lifetime process. We're in a process of sanctification that is to transform all of who we are. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 where Paul also tells us that it's God doing the work. We're simply cooperating with him and the transformation, the Holy Spirit, for example, among other things, is growing in us the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, which is more and more having the character of Jesus. If you wanted to put it in a harder tone, the writer of Hebrews at chapter 5 says, we're to grow up. Mm, that's great. <laughs> and Ephesians 4 says it the same way. He says yes. we're supposed to grow up so we're no longer children, but we're instead all doing our part. We're knitted together. We're being equipped Absolutely. by the equipping ministers connected with Christ as our head, doing the work of ministry and coming more and more into a fullness of love. And these are such amazing scriptures because, Doug, I know that in the church circles that I grew up in, it was almost as though salvation was the finish line. But in reality, salvation is only the beginning. It's not the ending. 
as, as Ephesians 4 says, we're to grow to the full measure of the stature of Jesus Christ. That sounds like a lifetime of growth to me. It is. And, and what we need to understand there is that we have a purpose for remaining on the earth after we're saved. We're called to the mission of being a witness, being the royal priesthood, being the house of prayer. And, and, and we talk about witnessing, but if you're an immature Christian, if you don't know much, if you don't look like Jesus and you don't love like Jesus, you're a lousy witness. And I used to be a trial lawyer. Lousy witnesses lose cases. <laughs> they don't win them. Yes. So, so okay, go you ahead, go ahead. Please. So talk for a moment. Talk to the person who is listening, who maybe has been in some of those circles like I once was, where, okay, they got saved decades ago or years ago, and right now their spiritual life is like autopilot. They're just on, you know, they're just uh, on, on cruise control. There's, there's not any intentional growth. There's not any true transformation really going on in their life right now. What would be their first steps toward entering into this kind of transformational growth like you're talking about? Okay, and that's, that's obviously a big question. But if the first step is understanding that God's word calls us to change, and we're supposed to obey God's word, then I think the second step is, is, is understanding what's our role. I think there's a tendency in the part of many people, people that really believe we need awakening and revival, to simply pray over and over again, God, bring revival, bring awakening, and bring your kingdom, all of which are wonderful in terms of prayers, but with one problem. You know, revival and awakening come one heart at a time. So the person who's praying for revival needs to be moving into revival. And we assume we can sit on the couch, pray for God to do it, and he'll do it. It's almost like we're saying, hey, God, would you please do more than you're already doing? When in fact, uh, the scriptures tell us uh, at 2 Peter 1, we're told that we've already been given everything that we need. For mature godly living. At Ephesians 1, we've already been blessed with every blessing in the heavenly places. So, so the stall, the, uh, the obstruction is not at God's end. It's really at our end. We have to say, I want to change I and do. I have a part to play. I need to step out and what God invites me to do in order to develop the positive change that he wants for me. You know, my view in Scripture has always been, it, it, this, this fascinates me, that the Bible does not seem to feel the need to explain um, that there is, okay, there's God's responsibility on things. He's the initiator of our faith, and He grants us faith. And First Peter 1, we're kept by the power of God. But yet, there is man's responsibility. Jude teaches we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. There, you know, we must believe in our heart, confess with our mouth. There are things that we must do that are our responsibilities. And I'll never forget when I really learned, you know, as a kid, you're pushed to grow, right? People push you, teachers push you, parents push you, your body, your mind, everything is naturally growing. But as you come into adulthood, growth is no longer automatic. And if you're not intentional about it, especially 
in spiritual matters, it's not going to happen automatically. We have to be intentional. And that's what I hear you saying today is we have to accept our responsibility to move ourselves toward spiritual growth. Absolutely. The, Paul talked about work out your own salvation with fear oh. and trembling, and it's really not a matter of us doing it. He was talking God working within you, but you working with him. And Second Peter that I had referenced earlier, we are partakers of the divine nature. Well, the word there, kononos, actually reads partner. And you've heard the term co-worker with Christ. You know, he's the senior partner. He's the Lord. He's in charge. But our work is significant to what goes on. Um, and, and, and so Jesus would add, and this perhaps is the strongest for me of all, in John 14, verses 21 and 23, he says, those who love me are the ones who have and keep my commandments. If we are going to love God, if we're going to love Jesus, then we do it by grabbing hold of what he's commanding us to do. And, and we're commanded to abide in his word. We're, we're commanded to pray. We're commanded to serve. We're commanded to be selfless. And above all things, we're commanded to unconditional love, all of which are ways in which you grow and change and become more like Jesus. I, I, I want to add one other thing, if you'll allow me. I want to squeeze it in. It's a second parable, or actually it's at the tail end of a group of parables in Matthew 13. And I think this can help a lot of people on this issue of change, both for a person and for a church. Matthew 13 has a ton of parables. That's the sower of the seed, the leaven in the loaf, the wheat in the tares, the treasure in the field, the pearl of great price. But at the end of all those parables, Jesus asks his disciples if they understand what he's been teaching. When they say yes, which is probably only partially true, he says this, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. You see, God calls us to change, but the process of godly transformation and change requires us not to give up everything or change everything, but to embrace treasures both old and new. Excellent. Many of Jesus' teachings were drawn directly and without change from his Bible, the Old Testament. Yes. The great commandment comes from there. Most of the Beatitudes come from there, for example. But in other areas, Jesus brought new and improved. Okay? Keep in mind, wineskins aren't just your music or your carpet color or your structure of organization. It's how you understand its word. It's, it's doctrines and traditions and frameworks so that you can have more truth again that sets you more free. And, and so Jesus says in the Old Testament says don't murder, but I say don't treat others with disdain. Don't belittle and mock people. The Old Testament says don't commit adultery, but I say don't lust with your eyes. Don't get involved with pornography. Jesus makes our enemies our neighbors hmm. and commands us to love them. And of course, most important, he brought the new covenant of salvation, replacing a system of sacrifices with one final sacrifice for all sins, for all people, for all time. There, there's this old saying 
Uh, it's not a biblical saying, but it's a good one. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. And, and, and both in the church and, and, and individually as Christians, as new and improved wineskins, we have to value treasures that are old as well as treasures that are new. We don't change God's word. It is supreme treasure. But God may change and deepen our understanding of what that word is saying and how best we can live it out, how we can draw closer to him and, again, change as we become more like him and are thus better able to reveal him to the world. Pastor Doug, I am learning so much from this conversation today, and I know that our listeners are as well. Doug, I know that we have many pastors and church leaders who listen to Awaken to Grace. I want you to take a moment, and I want you to talk to the pastor or the church leadership team that their church right now is like an old wineskin. They want to lead toward change. They want to be more open to what the Holy Spirit wants to do right now in their church, but they face resistance. And they don't know quite how to lead uh, in a healthy way toward becoming new wineskins. Talk to them for a moment. Well, of course, I've, I've met people like that, and I've had times when I, I was walking in that difficulty. Uh, we all know the church can you know, be up in arms over changing the color of a carpet, uh, let alone other things. But I, I think the first thing that pastors and other servant leaders need to do is they need to recognize that the scriptures do describe them as shepherds and equipping ministers. So they have a leadership responsibility in bringing about understanding. So step one is being persuaded yourself that God is calling the church to positive divinely led transformation. And if they get to that point, then their job obviously is not to please man, it's to please God. So so right off the bat, you said when you said positive, that absolutely perked my ears. So if I'm a pastor and what I want to change are preferences, that's not necessarily a positive change, is it? Well, that that's true. People again like the old wine, as Jesus said. They they like it and they and they don't want to try something new. And maybe to some degree. And I'm 73, and I kind of enjoy positive change. But the older you get, the more set in your ways. Some people say you get. Um, nevertheless, I I think what we need to understand is any change that is triggered by the Lord is positive. Okay, that's the key. Yes. The Lord is the head of his church, Correct. and there is no other. And so, but, you, but there are some things, at least this is what I'm hearing when you say positive change. There are some hills that are not worth dying on. And if it's just simply a preference to me, is that necessarily a positive change for the body? Whereas if we're talking matters of the Holy Spirit, if we're talking matters of true ministry that bring transformation, okay, maybe that's a different level of positive change? Oh, that's that's a great question. I, it brings to mind for me some of the things, for example, John Wesley said when the church was dealing with division, because obviously you can get into issues of division over preference, as you say. And he said, you know, love and harmony in the essentials, grace <laughs> in the rest of it. So 
I think there is a discernment. Uh, it, it's not that important what color the carpet is. I, I, I don't mean to dive into the worship wars, but it's not always that important which songs you're choosing or which instruments you're using to play and, and things of that nature. The essential changes, first and foremost, are better understanding who God is, who Christ is, what they've done, who we are in Christ, and what we're called to do. And there's obviously a great deal of brokenness and immaturity in the church on those essentials. So if the pastors and servant leaders feel led by the Lord to be moving toward more maturity, more intimacy with Christ, more obedience, more commitment, more accountability, and all the peace and joy and blessings and treasures of heaven that come from that— then they've got to decide this is a God thing. God's in charge of the church, and so I've got to find a way. And then step two in my mind is you're convicted, now convict them. You've been taught by the Lord, now let the Lord use you to teach them. Preach on the scriptures of change. Preach on the scriptures of what God is calling his people to be and do until they are persuaded and then move into changes, again, led by the Word and the Spirit as, as more and more consensus forms and, 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 and work on those essentials. The, the, the rest will fall into harmony with that over time. So I think that's the way you approach it. Uh, I, I, I wish I could say that it, you know, it just works like a hot knife through butter, but we all know different. We live in a broken world. Uh, we're all works in progress. None of us are perfect. And, and so, you know, we have to recognize that no matter how much you pray and how hard you work and how hard you try to be led by the Lord, you will have some who are going to respond in a positive way, sometimes even adding to what you've been seeing. And you're going to have some that are going to be stiff-necked and they're going to cross their arms and they're going to say, I shall not be moved. And, and, and then you've got to pray about, you know, how am I going to deal with that? What would you say, Doug, to a believer or even a pastor who is in a situation where they are willing to become new wineskins, but the setting they're in is not going to change? They're going to remain an old wineskin. What kind of encouragement would you give to those people? I think the first thing I would say is you have to trust in the Lord that whether you stay at a church or, or, or you leave a church, either as a, a member of the congregation or as a member of the, the, the leadership, that's a decision that you look to the Lord to give you direction on. Uh, there are many people that stay at a church for the wrong reasons. This is my church. This is a church my family always was at. This is what I'm used to. There are many people that leave churches for the wrong reason. He offended me with what he said. I don't like the song she sang. You know, people that literally play musical chairs, uh, looking for whatever will please them and scratch their itchy ears. Uh, but for a, a, someone who's following Jesus, mm. and that's what we're that's called to do. We're not <laughs> called to believe. We're called to be disciples. We're called to follow. Yes. You, you, you ask those questions of the Lord. How yes. do I deal with this? Do I stay or do I leave? And if I stay, what do I say? What do I do? You know, someone worth studying. You mentioned John Wesley and someone who is a contemporary of John Wesley 
was a pastor named Charles Simeon. I don't know if you've ever done any reading of Charles Simeon, but he was very narrowly voted into his pastorate, and it was the wealthy, the influential people of his church that did not want him as a pastor. And in those days, uh, people locked their pews. You rented your pew. You know, you didn't give a 10% tithe. You rented your pew, so it was your possession. And they would lock their pews, not allowing him to do any Bible studies through the day. And you would think that he would have looked for a better opportunity. But, you know, the Lord told him to stay in that church, even though he fought resistance for years. But, you know, this was the early 1700s. Yeah, 18th century. That's right. And, uh, you know, he became known to be a global pulpit because over the years he stayed and he raised up so many young men that went to the mission field. And God used him, even in difficult situations. Yeah, the other interesting thing about John Wesley, and I, you know, I went to a, a, a seminary that was Wesleyan in terms of its uh, foundation, um, and, and it leads to my favorite quote from, from John Wesley. Um, but, you know, when he brought about the Methodist movement to begin dealing with small groups, accountability, things of this nature, preaching in the streets you know he was part of the church of england and the church of england <laughs> did not like it and 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 all of uh, that culture really gave him a hard time but he never had a desire to leave the church of england to form a new denomination of any kind he said this what is the leaven without the loaf he was committed to trying to bring change from within. And the only reason we ended up with a separate Methodist denomination, frankly, is because he had brought you know, his teachings and everything and his movement over to the United States. And when we had the American Revolution and, and became a new nation apart from England, we could no longer really have the Church of England uh, very well. And that's really when the Methodist denomination was born. So I think there are times you leave. Remember uh, when Jesus sent uh, his 12 apostles out, he told them, go into the place where you can go. If they receive you, go in, be blessed, bless. But if they don't receive you, then leave. And as you leave, kick the dust off your feet. And, and, and so again, there are, there are times to stay, lots of times to stay, even when it's hard and you're discouraged. On the other hand, there are there are times to go, and, and, and they're hard decisions, which is just one more good reason why you want the Lord to direct you in it. Pastor Doug, what an incredible conversation today. My spirit has been <laughs> encouraged and renewed, and uh, you've just shared so many truths with us that uh, in reality I need to sit down and really process because there was so much great content that you shared with us. Um, Doug, why don't you take a moment and why don't you pray for our listeners, pray for those who the Lord has challenged through this broadcast, that he's calling them to deeper growth. He's calling them to move more towards spiritual maturity. Uh, and maybe for those who are in um, a season of uh, big decision-making and they don't know yet how the Lord is leading them. I'll just ask all the listeners to pray with me. Wonderful Heavenly Father, wonderful Lord Jesus, 
wonderful Holy Spirit of the Lord who dwells within every Christian because we are your children. You have chosen us and you have set us apart and your Holy Spirit has come to live inside us. We thank you. (laughs) We could go on forever thanking you for things that you've done, things you're doing, just as we could go forever praising you for all the awesome things that you are. Today, we, we, we submit ourselves, God. We all have decisions to make, but particularly, God, we stand with those who are submitting themselves on, on issues of more God, growing closer to the Lord, becoming more like Jesus, becoming more fruitful, being a better witness of Jesus and the gospel. And we pray for the churches that are collectives, communities of, 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 of individuals of that kind. And we, we say, Lord, lead us. You live within us. You said that those who are led by the Spirit are the ones who are mature sons and daughters of God. So we say, lead us, reveal to us, encourage us, God. Uh, uh, show us the things that are getting in the way. Lord, I've, I've learned that, that if I try to fight it all off in my own strength, I get nowhere. But if I yield and come to you, then you'll do the fighting for me, God. So we just submit ourselves to you and we say, direct us, God. Direct us in our prayer life. Direct us in our, in our study ongoing of your word. Direct us in how we are to do our part and be rightly fitted together. And above all things, God, let us love you with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strengths and give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, I hope that you can see why Pastor Doug is one of our great friends, and he's such a mentor to me personally. Uh, He is literally, he's a giant in the faith in my eyes. And I hope that you have gained an appreciation for what a Bible teacher he is. And, uh, you know, when I think about Doug, I think about a believer who is truly balanced. And even in his teaching today, uh, even in this great conversation, I hope that you can sense that uh, biblical balance that I think marks his ministry. Well, I want to encourage you to pick up his latest book, Be With Jesus, Be Like Jesus, before Jesus. It is published by Westbow Press, and there are a number of places where you can get it, including Westbow Press and Amazon. And if you are part of Preaching Christ Church or you live in Kingsport, his books are available in our resource center, so you can drop by the church, pick it up there. I personally got my copy from Audible, and I'll tell you, of the hundreds of Audible books that are in my personal library, It is one of the best quality. It's one of the best narrated books that I have in my personal library. I know that you'll grow from it. I know that you'll enjoy it. Thank you for joining us today on this special broadcast of Awakened to Grace.